The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Uh, last week, I sort of uh, I left you hanging like one of those terrible endings to a television show where it's to be continued at the end and, and you have to wait till the following week to, to finish it up, but... Uh, but, but there we are. We're in Luke chapter 4, looking at verses uh, 1 through 12. I'll read the entire text this morning, and then we'll set the stage and, and get right back into our, to our study. Luke writes, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, It will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. We find ourselves going back into the desert of Judea this morning, back into the middle of of what amounts to a a heavyweight battle that's going on out in the the barren, dry uh, wasteland of a Judean desert. We have Jesus, the the Son of God. Luke has already presented him to us through the birth narratives as the Son of God, and he's shown us how how, uh, his birth was miraculous and and how John the Baptist was his forerunner uh, as prophesied in the Old Testament and how all of the the prophecies have aligned to make very, very clear that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And and that culminated with, at the end of chapter 3, Jesus' baptism, where the voice from heaven of the Father speaks and says, You are my Son, with you I'm well pleased. And immediately on the heels of that, Jesus, we're told by Luke, is led out into the Judean desert, and he's there for 40 days, and he hasn't eaten a thing. He's famished. He's on the verge of starvation, and it is there in the midst of this awful place, all alone, having been alone without food for a considerable length of time, when he was at his absolute weakest, that, that Satan arrives. He steps out from behind the curtain, if you will, and, and has a face-to-face confrontation with Jesus. And it's in the context of all of this that he brings temptation into Christ's life in live, vivid color. We began to look at this last week and saw the very first temptation. I'll give you a bit of a context of that in just a moment. Uh, But there's some questions that sort of arise as we walk through this text and as I studied it uh, that we didn't really talk about last last week. And I'll I'll throw them out there for you just to to think about. We won't explore them all right now, but maybe you can write them down if you want to explore them later. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, one of the things that comes up often in, in thinking through this text is, well, how does Luke know about this encounter? It happened in the desert. Jesus was alone with Satan. So how does Luke know? Luke wasn't there. Matthew wasn't there. Peter wasn't there. Neither was Mark or any of the others. Um, how could they possibly know what went down out here? Well, there's a simple answer to that, and it's that Jesus must have disclosed the story at some point. Uh, Probably in one of his teaching moments with his disciples, he sat down and explained to them the nature of temptation. They talked about temptation quite often, and they certainly talked about Satan often. And so there would have been ample opportunity for Jesus to convey this experience uh, to his disciples and then for them to uh, uh, commit it to the page. 
Another question is, why does Luke include this temptation? Why does he include this encounter in his gospel? Mark doesn't include it. John doesn't include it. Matthew includes it. But why does, why does Luke include this? Well, how does it fit into the, to, to the picture that Luke is trying to paint? Well, Luke is writing his gospel to a man named Theophilus, who's a Gentile, who's struggling with doubts about his faith. And so Luke is writing this to help him shore up his doubts and to show him that he has very good reason to stand on Christ as the Son of God and to place his faith and trust in him. That it's not just blind faith, that, his, that it is a faith based on clear and, and, and incontrovertible evidence. And so Luke is set out to write this gospel to, to show him once again what is that evidence. And this encounter is a piece of the case that Luke is making for Theophilus and for any who doubt the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is he's putting this here as evidence that Jesus was the Son of God. Who else could face off with Satan in, in hand-to-hand, face-to-face combat in the desert and come out victorious? Who could do that apart from the Son of God? Who could stand, withstand this kind of an onslaught, being famished and weak and alone and still stand at the end of this kind of intense temptation? The answer is only the true Son of God could do such a thing. And so Luke wants Theophilus and us to see that as we walk through this text. A further question, why was it necessary for Jesus to be tempted? Why did he have to do this at all? Why was this important? Why did the Spirit lead him out there? And why was this an important part of of his road to redemption, if you will, road to redeeming us? And I think there are two simple answers to that. First, temptation is a part of the human experience. And we talked about this a bit last week, so I won't belabor the point. But we, we made the case already that Jesus, not only is he divine, but he's also fully human. And that he can identify with humanity in every way. And temptation is a very real part of being a human being. Can I get an amen on that? Right? If you're human, you understand temptation. You deal with it. You fight it. You battle it, I hope. But it's a real reality in your life just like it is mine. And, and it's a part of being human. And for Jesus to identify with full humanity, temptation has to be a part of that picture. And so this is a part of that. But he also came to undo Adam's sin. And we talked about this last week as well. That, that in Adam's sin, all humanity fell. And part of what Christ is doing in, in coming and living and dying and being raised from the dead and ascending to the Father is undoing what Adam has done, undoing the curse that Adam has brought. And where Adam failed in temptation, Christ stands tall. Now there are a bunch of, uh, I say a bunch, a few uh, questions that sort of breed controversy out of this text. I've intentionally sort of avoided them in my uh, preparation for preaching as far as what I'm going to present to you, but I'll make it uh, sort of out there, put it out there for you in case you want to study it uh, on your own. For those of you who are sort of theologically a curious folks who like to, to study these things. What are the big debates that comes up in walking through this, this narrative? It relates to the, the nature of Christ and his impeccability. Now there's a theological word for you uh, to, to you know, watch Jeopardy one night and maybe it'll come up. But the issue is, uh, is Christ impeccable or is he peccable? Well, you know the answer to that, right? No, you don't. Because you don't know what impeccable or impeccable means in this context, <laughs> nor should you. It revolves around the question, could Jesus Christ have sinned? The issue is, could he have sinned? Could he have disobeyed the Father and sinned in the face of these temptations? There are those theologically who hold to, a, to the impeccability of Christ who say, absolutely no, it was not possible for Christ to sin. Being the divine Son of God, he could not have sinned in this case or in any case, in which case he is, would be impeccable. You got that? And there are others who say, absolutely not. For the temptation to be real, there has to be the possibility of failing the test. Otherwise, it isn't a real test, in which case Christ then is peccable, not impeccable. And thus commences the theological chair throwing via blogs and writing and everywhere else. So you can read about that on your own, and you can sort out uh, whether you think... uh, Christ is peccable or impeccable. But it isn't the issue of the text, so I'm not going to belabor the point. Uh, the other question that comes up is when we start looking at the second, third temptation, we see the text tell us that, that there, Satan in the temptation and Christ are transported to a mountain, transported to Jerusalem. And so the question is, what is the nature of this transportation? Did they physically transport to these locations? Or is this some sort of a, a supernatural 
uh, a vision of some sort? Uh, and and the, the answer to that question is, I don't have any idea. I don't have any idea. Uh, I know that it happened and it was very real. I don't know how it happened because the text doesn't tell us how it happened. If you look, I, 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 just a little clue, at least in my mind, is if you go to 2 Corinthians and you read Paul writing, and he talks about a time uh, when he uh, is, is caught up into heaven, if you will, and he, he's taken to heaven and he gets a glimpse of what heaven is like. And Paul talks about that very briefly in 2 Corinthians. And when he's describing it, he says, I was taken up into heaven, this is my paraphrase, I was taken up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. And he repeats that phrase twice when he's describing it. It's as though he's saying, I went there and I saw it. How I got there, I don't know. Was I in body or out of the body? I don't know. I just know I was there. I kind of think this probably is a similar situation and trying to split the hair of how this plays out is probably pushing the text beyond what it gives us. And so it's kind of a, a silly debate. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Are you good with that? All right, let's move on. So we get to the text and the temptations. And I want you to understand that the, the temptations that Jesus faces with Satan revolve around three issues that are three issues that recur in your life and mine in the area of temptation. The first temptation that we saw last week was a temptation uh, that revolved around physical needs and physical desires. Christ's need for food, his need and his desire for bread. He was starving to death, and it was a real temptation to fulfill his own needs apart from the Father's plan and apart from the Father's provision. And temptation often revolves around physical needs and physical desires, uh, driving us or, or pulling us, as it were, outside of trusting in God to provide and seeking to provide for our own needs and our own desires. The second one we'll see this morning deals with the issue of possessions and power, and the third one deals with pride. And I guarantee if you were to do an analysis of the temptation you face in your life, most of your temptations fall in one of those three buckets. You're tempted or something around physical needs and desires. You're tempted around something to do with your possessions or acquiring some sort of power. Or you're tempted to do something that revolves around the issue of pridefulness. Those are three large buckets to which most of our temptations fall. And those are sort of the three tracks along which these temptations that Christ faces here uh, run as well. And so we saw last week that first temptation that Jesus is starving uh, and Satan comes along and says, look, if you're the son of God, really since you're the son of God, because Satan knows who he is, since you're the son of God, why don't you just turn this stone into bread? I mean, you've been out here for 40 days, you're starving, you're in pitiful shape, you're on the verge of literal starvation. I mean, this isn't the kind of condition the son of God should be in. If that's really who you are, and you really have that ability, you really have the power of almighty God, then what are you doing starving in the desert? Why don't you just turn that stone into some bread and, and feed yourself, man? How hard is that? You can do it. What are you waiting for? It's a very subtle temptation, but a powerful temptation. And at its heart, it was a temptation to refuse to wait on his father's provision for his needs. To make the decision in his heart that my father will not provide my needs, I'll have to provide for myself and to take matters into his own hands. And you know what that temptation is like. And I know what that temptation is like. We know what it's like to, to come to times in our life when we're dissatisfied with what God's provided and to be tempted to take matters in our own hand. We, we know what it's like to be dissatisfied with God's timing and wanting him to act sooner than what he's inclined to act. And we want to take things matters into our own hand and so forth. And this is exactly what Jesus faced in this temptation. But of course, he stands clear on the issue. Man doesn't live by bread alone, he says, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. My, my, my sustenance is the word of God, and his word is he's promised to meet all of my needs. I don't have to worry about being hungry or starving to death. He'll care for me when he's ready. And thus we move to verse 5, temptation number 2. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time and said to him, to you, I'll give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me, and I'll give it to whom I will. If you then just worship me, it'll all be yours. Satan, like a petty thief, doesn't give up easily, does he? If he can't break into the front door, he'll go around to the back door. And if he can't get into the back door, he'll try the side door as well. Martin Luther makes that analogy pretty clear. He says this, the devil takes no holiday. He never rests. If he rises, uh, if beaten, he rises again. 
If he cannot enter in front, he steals in at the rear. If he can't enter in the rear, he breaks through the roof or enters by tunneling under the threshold. He labors until he's in. He uses great cunning in many a plan. When one miscarries, he has another at hand, and he continues his attempts until he wins. Can anybody identify with that reality? Satan comes and he brings temptation into our world and we resist the first time only to see him go around to the back door and come back at us again. Only to see him go to the side or tunnel under the threshold. I like that illustration. Satan is a persistent, persistent enemy. He's a relentless foe and he doesn't give up easily. Thomas Brooks writes this. He says, Satan being fallen from light to darkness, from felicity to misery, from heaven to hell, from an angel to a devil, is so full of malice and envy that he'll leave no means unattempted, whereby he may make all others equally miserable with himself. He, being shut out of heaven and shut up under the chains of darkness until the judgment of that great day, makes use of all his power and skill to bring all the sons of men into the same condition and condemnation with himself. I think Brooks is on to something here. And we see that here in this temptation. I mean, been rebuffed the first time. Satan simply changes the subject and changes the argument, and he has another go at Jesus. He couldn't get Jesus to disobey the Father in relation to his physical needs, so now he turns to a different sort of a temptation, one related to power and possessions. And we're told he took him up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Where did he take him up? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. How did they get there? Well, I've already answered that question. I don't know. Either way, the temptation was clear, and it was real, and it was vivid, very, very vivid. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He takes Jesus on some sort of a a supernatural uh, whirlwind tour, if you will, and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world in all of its glory and all of its treasure and all of its splendor, all of the power and all of the glory that Christ currently at the moment does not possess. What a sight that must have been. Can you imagine? To see in one glance all of the treasure of the world, all of the glory of all of the nations of the world, all of the splendor of all of the world's kingdoms in one sight, the accumulated wealth and power of the entire world in front of you. What a tremendous sight it must have been. And I don't need to tell you that the allure of power and wealth is tremendously tempting. Am I right about that? The allure of power and wealth is tremendously tempting. The things people will do for money or for power are remarkable. The history of humanity is marked by the awful things people will do for money and power. Death and destruction and chaos that flow out of that temptation. Just simply when you have some time, Google what will people do for $10 million and have fun being sick to your stomach at what you find in some of the surveys that people would do for $10 million and admit to it. And here, Jesus has shown all of the wealth, the accumulated wealth and power of the world. Not a million dollars, not $10 million, the entire summation of all of the world's treasure and glory and power at one time. And Satan says to him, I'll give it all to you. You can have it all. Now, according to the Bible and the Old Testament, Jesus is already promised to inherit the world. This is clear in the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. You could see Daniel chapter 7. You could see Psalm 2. You could see Psalm 72. You could go again over to Zechariah chapter 9 and other places, and you can see how the Messiah will inherit the earth in all of its glory. And so there's a sense in which all that Satan is offering Jesus here is already rightfully his. It's already rightfully his in time. In time. They're his messianic birthright, if you will. If he is the Son of God, if he is the Messiah, then he is to inherit all those promises, and the world is part of that promise. He knew he had the right to 
receive the kingdom and the power and the glory. It was his calling to be the king one day, but not this day. You see, God's plan was for him to suffer and to die on a cross for sinners first, and only after that to receive his kingdom. But what Satan has done is he's come alongside him and he's shown him all the glory and splendor accumulated of the world. And he says, listen, why wait for all that? You can have it right now. I've got it. I can hand it over to you right now. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? It's a classic tactic of Satan. It's a classic, a classic part of his of sort of his strategy when he comes up against us, when he brings something to us in way of temptation to magnify the upside, right, and to minimize the downside. You see that in temptation when it comes your way, right? Magnify the upside, what you're going to get out of it, and to minimize the cost or to minimize the downside. He comes into your world, and he's like the person on TV and those irritating, annoying commercials. Look at all this, and you can have it all for just $9.99, right? The super salad spinner, it's better than anything in your closet. You can get rid of all those things and put all your salad in there and smash it, and it spins it, and it's perfect, $9.99. It's all you need to do. And then there's that little voice that comes at the end and talks really fast, you know, Shipping and handling, fourteen seventy-two or whatever. You have to end up paying thirty dollars for the nine ninety-nine thing that was going to probably break the first time you use it. And that's the kind of salesman that Satan is. He comes at us like that, and he builds up the wonder of what he's putting in front of us, and he magnifies what we're going to get out of it, and he minimizes the actual cost and the bankruptcy of it all. Jesus, you can have it all. You can have it all right now, and it won't cost you anything cost you hardly nothing hardly nothing I put a quote there in your uh, in your your worship handout today from Richard Sibbs I thought it was beautiful he says this Satan gives Adam an apple and he takes away paradise therefore in all temptations let us consider not what he offers but what we shall lose Satan Satan comes at us that way he offers us an apple and he wants to take away paradise. And that's what he does to Jesus here. He, he, he's offering a petty thrill. And, and he's offering him something that is rightfully his in the future. But that's what he does to you. He'll offer you a petty thrill that, that it will exact an enormous price. But he'll downplay the price and he'll play up the thrill. Just do this right now. Nobody will ever know. You get this. It's going to be fun. You're going to find pleasure. You're going you're to make some extra money on the side. You're going to come out fine. Nobody's going to know, and it's not going to be a big deal. But listen to me, friends. What you get is never what he advertises. It's never what he advertises. It's always worse. Satan is a master deceiver, and he's a master liar. And he comes to Jesus and he says, all you have to do, you can have it all right now. Just worship me. That's it. That's it. That's it. Just worship me. It's no big deal. I mean, how easy is that? It'll only take you a minute and you can have it all right now. All you have to do is abandon your loyalty to the Father and bow before me. You and me, kid, we can do great things. Just take a knee. That's all you got to do right now. Now the question arises as we look at this, was Satan telling the truth when he offers Jesus this? Is it a legitimate offer? Again, another thing that has some bit of controversy wrapped around it, was it all, was, was all of the world his to give? Did he have the authority to actually make this offer, or was this some sort of a delusion of grandeur on Satan's part? Well, the Bible does call him in multiple places the God of this world, refers to him as the Prince of the power of the air, refers to him in a couple other places, the ruler of this world. So there's some sense in which Satan has authority and he has some rulership and some operational control, if you will, of what's happening here on planet earth. But the reality is that doesn't override the truth that the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. God is still sovereign over the world and any authority and power that Satan has is a delegated authority that's been given to him temporarily from God the Father. So at best, I think Satan is only here telling a half-truth. He's offering way more than he can give. It's a deception. It's a delusion. 
which is really like all of Satan's proposals that he brings into our world. He often can't provide what he offers. They deceived us by lying to us. That's exactly what he does to Jesus. Just worship me. Just take a knee. It's all yours right now. You don't have to worry about it. This is the very lust, by the way, that got Satan kicked out of heaven, right? I mean, if you go back and you study why, how did Satan, the, the, the glorious angel, become Satan, the deceiver, it's because he, he lusted. He had this incredible lust to usurp God's throne. He couldn't stand that God was on the throne and that he wasn't. And he wanted more than anything to be worshipped like God was worshipped. And as you can see in this temptation, he still wants the same thing. He's still, he's still driven by this need to be worshipped. And so he says to Jesus, you can have it all. Just worship me. Just bow before me. He still lusts for that same thing. And every false religion in the world is just another manifestation of Satan's attempt to get people to worship him and not the true God. He's still doing it. And people still bow, not knowing what they're doing. And it's to this end that all of his temptations really drive. All of Satan's temptations drive around this road. Abandon God, follow me. Abandon God's plan and get on my plan. Abandon God's provision and trust in my provision. That's where it all goes. Come my way. It's easier, it's better. God's way is hard, it's costly, it's painful. It isn't worth it. My way is smooth. There's no restraints, there's no rules. You can do what you want to do. It doesn't cost you very much and I'll give you everything. The only cost is you just worship me. That's it. And that's the essence of this temptation when it comes to Christ. It's temptation to grab hold of the crown without going to the cross. It's a temptation to avoid the pain and the struggle of the road to redemption. To avoid the arrest and to avoid the rejection and to avoid the beatings and to avoid the crown of thorns and to avoid the nails to avoid the cross and to avoid the grave. You don't have to do all that. Just take a knee and you can have it all. You can have it all. You can get the payoff without the price. Just take a knee and bypass Calvary. Listen, this temptation was a recurring temptation throughout the life of Jesus. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Matthew 16, verse 22 and 23, a familiar passage, Jesus has just told his disciples what he's going to do, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, that the Son of Man is going to be handed over, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, and he's going to die. And Peter pulls him aside in verse 22 of Matthew 16, and he says this. He rebukes him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to him and said, Peter... Get behind me, Satan. Why does he say to him, get behind me, Satan? Why does he call Peter Satan? Because this is precisely the same temptation as temptation number two in Luke number four, chapter four. It's the temptation to bypass the cross and to take a path other than the road that leads through the cross. To take an easy path, to divert from God's plan to redeem humanity by dying in our place. It's the same temptation over again. This time not coming out of the mouth of Satan, but coming through his, one of his dearest friends. And so he calls it what it is. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, the things of man. And even as Jesus is hanging on his cross, on the cross, literally dying, the crowd, we're told in Matthew 27, who's passing by, they're wagging their heads and they're saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. It's the same thing. Why don't you just come down from there if you're the son of God? Even one of the thieves that's crucified next to him, what does he say to him? Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's the same temptation. It's a temptation over and over and over again to abandon a road that leads through the cross and to a grave and to Resurrection Sunday and the Ascension. To take the easy way to avoid the pain that there's some other way. And there is no other way except God's way. And yet Jesus faces this temptation over and over again. 
Satan says, I'll give you what's rightly yours without pain and without death. And Jesus says to him, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus understands what the, the heart of this temptation, doesn't he? And again, he points Satan to the scriptures, back to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, chapter 6. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the context of that is God, via Moses, is warning the people of Israel. He's warning them before they go into the promised land. And he's telling them, here are some things that are going to probably happen when you get into the promised land. You're going to get there, and you're going to all of a sudden experience all of my blessings and all the wealth that comes from inheriting this land. And you're going to build houses for yourself, and you're going to fill it up with stuff because I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to provide all of these things for you. And then when you do that, and you become prosperous, there's going to be all this temptation for you to abandon me. And to go after the other gods and to worship other gods apart from me. And so it's in that context of Deuteronomy chapter 6 that God is speaking to Israel. And in verse 5 and then down in verses 13 and 15, here's what he says. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. No matter what happens, this is what you're to do. Don't love anyone else with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Only the Lord your God. And then in verse 13 he says, it's the Lord your God who you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is what kind of a God? He's a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. It was a, it was a sobering warning. You're going to get wealthy, and you're going to get rich, and you're going to be tempted to, 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 to chase after other gods and to bow down before them. But you need to remember, this is all because of my plan and my provision. And if you ever get confused about that, and you start going around and bowing down to other gods, you need to understand, I am a good and gracious king, but I am a God who is jealous for your affection. You bow to other gods, and I'll kill you. That's what he says. And Jesus, very aware of the scriptures, knowing that Satan understands it too, says to him very clearly, I know what you're doing, and I'm not falling for that. I'm not falling for that. Where Israel failed, I won't fail. And he stands strong. As we think about this temptation and try to apply it, let me ask you just a simple question. What would it take for you to sell out? What would Satan have to offer you for you to give in? What would he have to offer you for you to compromise your faith and to just take a knee? What kind of sexual temptation would he have to bring in your life in order for you to just take a knee and say, yep, I'll bow to you for this? What kind of financial gain does he have to bring into your world and put in front of you for you to say, yep, I'll take a knee for that. What kind of other temptation does he have to bring into your world? What kind of fear of losing something does he have to put in front of you in order for you to abandon God's plan for your life and get on his plan? Whatever those things are that pop into your mind, those are the kinds of things he'll put right in front of you. And this same kind of temptation will come at you just like it came at Christ. And there's always going to be some temptation to take a shortcut to salvation, a short, shortcut to sanctification, an easy worldly way to power and glory that isn't part of God's plan for your life. And he'll offer it to you cheap and easy. All you got to do is just take an E. Worship me. Well, temptation number three. He took him to Jerusalem and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Again, he comes at him with this same, this same uh, opening line, if you are the son of God, which I think he's saying, since you are the son of God, because I don't believe, again, Satan is confused. But he puts the if in there. He likes to do that with temptation. S. Lewis Johnson said it this way. I thought it was brilliant. He said, Satan always aims his ifs at the Father's honor as expressed in the revelation of Holy Scripture. Satan likes to aim his ifs 
into your world and mine if you are the son of God. What about this? And this is another temptation uh, that's aimed at proving Jesus' identity. I mean, how bad could this be, actually? I mean, aren't people supposed to know that he's the Messiah? I mean, shouldn't everyone know that he's the Messiah? Why not just go ahead and show him right now that you're the Messiah? What's the harm in that? So he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. One of two places, either the roof over the sanctuary or sort of this uh, royal portico that juts out of the corner wall sort of over a hillside that stands about 500 feet above the Kidron Valley below. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, writes about that location. He says, he even says that, that when you stood out on it, it would make you dizzy looking over the edge of it. Uh, any of the, those who, like me, are not a huge fan of heights can probably identify with that. But he takes him there in some sort of a way, and he says to Jesus, throw yourself down from here. Basically, God will protect you. Jump off. Jump off. If you're the Son of God, jump off. And, and the Father will, will have to miraculously save you. It, it, it'll prove your identity to you, and it'll prove your identity to me, and it'll prove your identity to everybody else. Everyone will know you're the Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy. Throw yourself off, and God will have to make good on it. Isn't that what he promised to do? Isn't that what the Bible says? Oh, Satan introduces a new tactic, doesn't he? He's an ever-shifting foe. He uses scripture here, doesn't he? Satan's adaptable. He's got a whole bag of tricks, and he doesn't give up easily. And so he sees a pattern in Jesus' responses, the word of God, and Jesus is speaking the truth of God back to him. And so in essence, he says, okay, all right, you want to talk scripture? Let's talk scripture. Let's talk scripture. I can do that. I can operate in that realm. I'm not unfamiliar with the word of God. Let's work off of the same sheet of music here. You're quoting me, Deuteronomy chapter 6. I've got one for you. How about Psalm 91? That's a good one. Psalm 91, it says you're invincible. It says if you're the son of God, you're invincible. It says if you're the son of God, you won't be harmed because the Father has got your back. And if that's true, and if you're the Messiah, prove it. Jump off. Let's see if he protects you. Let's see if his word is reliable. Let's see if he comes through on his promise. And then we'll all know the truth. Friends, make no mistake. Satan knows the Bible. Martin Luther said this. The devil is able to confront me with real theological arguments. The devil's better at theology than my opponents. Luther's on to something. But what we notice about Satan here is he doesn't quote the whole passage. He never does. He's selective. Back in Psalm 91, uh, around the text that he quotes, it says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. It's a messianic song speaking of the Messiah. This is because you've made the Lord your dwelling place in verse 9 and down in verse 14. Because he, that's the Messiah, holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. The promise that Satan quotes is a conditional promise that's based on the Messiah's obedience and faithfulness and fidelity to the Father's plan. It's not a blanket promise that applies to putting him to the test. But Satan knows how to selectively quote Scripture. He knows how to twist Scripture to confuse us and to mislead us. And he knows how to take a text of Scripture out of context and misapply it all very well. How many times have I been in a counseling setting as a pastor, sitting down with somebody, trying to help them work through something, something that they're either doing or trying or, 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 or thinking about doing that is sinful, and opening up God's word and saying, look here, brother, look here, sister, here's what it says in God's word. You should not do that. If you do this, you'll disobey the Lord, and you'll suffer the consequences of disobedience to the Lord. Don't do this, only to have the other person, a Christian, say to me, well, I, I know that, but, but over here, what about over here? It says over here, and I think this one gives me an out. That's Satan's tactical game plan. That's his tactical game plan. If he can't get you to, to, to doubt what the scriptures say, he'll just point out some other scripture and confuse you and give you some sort of a reason to... Use the Bible to excuse your own sin. And that's exactly what he's doing right here. He's twisting Psalm 91 and turning it into some sort of a blanket promise for for Christ to now presume upon the Lord and put his father to the test rather than waiting and following his will. 
Listen, friends, you can twist and turn Bible verses to make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And there are skilled people who know exactly how to do that. I quoted you a, a Pastor Don Hawkins a, a couple of weeks ago, a person who claims to be a Christian pastor. And uh, I quote her again, particularly on this text. She says this. She says, I've learned enough about the anonymous gospel storytellers. Notice what she calls them. Anonymous gospel storytellers. By the way, somebody should write her a letter and tell her his name is Luke, and we know who he is. Um, to know that their stories are more than just history. Now listen to what she says. I've learned to read beyond the words that have been handed down to us. To ponder the multi-layered texture of meanings that lie hidden waiting to be discovered. Now that sounds very, very intelligent. And it sounds like she's the brilliant person in the room. But what she's actually saying is, I've learned that you cannot trust the words of the Bible as you read them. That there are all these other meanings that are hidden behind them. And those are the things that really matter. And those are the things that we're going to search for and find and use to justify our choices in life. And it's no surprise that a pastor like that can encourage people to get involved in every sort of perverted thing that the world has to offer and say it's okay. Because they can always find a text that has a multi-layered meaning behind it that they can show. And this is Satan at his best. And it's exactly what he does to Jesus there in the desert. The essence of this temptation is for Jesus to presume upon God, to back him into a corner, to force him to act, instead of trusting for God to act in his way and in his time, and to show him to be the Messiah in his way and in his time. It's a temptation to force God's hand instead of waiting on his timing. It's the presumptuous of putting God to the test while living in disobedience. And friends, we don't have a whole lot of time here, but this one comes close to home too. There is a temptation that comes into our lives to live in disobedience and rebellion against the Lord, to do our own thing, and then to quote scripture back at God, demanding that he keep us from the consequences. And I bet you understand what that's like, just like I do. And Jesus understood as well. But he answers him and he says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Back to Deuteronomy 6 again. He's not diverted to Psalm 91 into a theological argument on a peripheral issue. He goes right back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan, you know that is sinful and rebellious to do what you've asked me to do. It's putting the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy chapter 6, that same chapter, it's worth reading when you go home this afternoon. A little further down, it's in the context of, 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 of something that happened way back in Exodus 17. We don't have time to read Exodus 17 this morning, but again, write it down and read it for yourself. Jesus has just miraculously provided manna for his people to eat in the wilderness. And they've eaten this miraculous bread that fell from the sky. And it's amazing, and you would think after God makes miracle bread fall from the sky to feed you every day, you would get the message, God's got my back. I don't have to be worried about my needs. But in Exodus chapter 17, the next thing you know, they're thirsty. And they're so thirsty, they're complaining against God and they're about to kill Moses. Literally. And they're demanding that God do something to meet their thirst, putting him to the test. And it's in that context, the very same temptation that they failed at the time, Jesus says, I got this. I know what it is. And it's wrong to do that. No way. No way. There was a time when his son, when the son of God was going to put his life in his father's hands. But that was going to be on Good Friday, not this day in the desert. And there was coming a time when the Father was going to glorify the Son and make clear to all the world that he is the Messiah who's come to redeem them. But it wasn't this day in the desert. It was on Easter Sunday. That was God's way, and that was God's plan. Satan knew it, and Jesus knew it. And at the end of this, Luke tells us that he departed from him until an opportune time. Matthew tells us something beautiful. He says, Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We don't have time to explore that, but there's a beauty in that text that is, that is remarkable. 
Remember, he's starved for 40 days. When this is all said and done, the father, like he always does, he makes good on his promise to care for his son. And he dispatches the cafeteria angels, I think, to spread a banquet in front of him and minister to his needs. What a beautiful picture. Our God is always faithful, and he always comes through on his promise, unlike the enemy who tempts us with lies and deception. The question becomes, what do we do in relation to this? And our time is up, so maybe next week we'll take some time to look at the issue. What do we do? How are we to respond to temptation? What is the best strategy when temptation comes to us in a real practical sense? And secondarily, what do we do in relationship to Satan and demons? How are we to interact or how are we to not interact or what are we to do in relation to those things? Are you interested enough in those things to do a whole sermon on those? You can just nod like this, and I know you're still alive and awake at the end of a sermon. Yes, that would be good. Maybe we'll do that next week. I, I close with this. It's a little humorous, but I've quoted Martin Luther, and I've quoted a couple of, reform, uh, of um, uh, reformers this morning, uh, and, and they have good things to say to us, but they're not always right in, uh, about everything. Uh, I only say that because in thinking through what do we do in face of temptation, I was reading Luther, and here's what Luther says. He says, almost every night when I wake up, the devil is there and he wants to dispute with me. I've come to this conclusion. When the argument that the Christian is without the law and above the law doesn't help, I instantly chase him away with a fart. That's Luther. That is Martin Luther. A direct quote from Table Talk 469. You can read it yourself. I only tell you that to say two things. Luther is brilliant, but we can do better than that. And we'll do better than that next week. And I've just given all the men in the room uh, a, a great excuse for the rest of this week. I can just see some of the brides walking into the room right now. What in the world happened here? Just fighting temptation, honey. Just fighting temptation. Scaring the devil away. I can see it. It's going to happen. I know some of you guys. I know you. We'll do better than that next week. How about that? We'll come up with some biblical strategy for fighting temptation. It'll be a little better than what Luther has to offer us there. But it is worth, it is worth us asking the question as we conclude. How does this text apply to our lives? These two temptations that Christ faced are real temptations. And they're the, they're the nature of the temptations that come into our lives in a very real way, a very, very real way. In a, in a hundred different ways, Satan will come into your life and into mine, and he will try to divert you off of God's will for your life and get you on his plan. He'll offer you possessions. He'll offer you wealth. He'll offer you pleasure. He'll offer you all sorts of things that, that tap into true desires of your heart. And maybe even things God that, is, that God has promised you in time. But he'll tempt you to, to try to force God's hand. He'll tempt you to try and get what is yours now rather than waiting and being patient. And I suspect that probably some of you in the room this morning are facing those kinds of temptations right now. Right now, as we're walking through this, there are things that were coming to your mind. You're like, I know what that's like. Just this past Tuesday, I was sitting in my office and this is what was going through my head. You know temptation. And you know what it's like to stand strong in temptation and to come out the other side trusting the Lord. But every one of us in this room knows what it's like to fall in the middle of temptation and to give in and to sin against the Lord. The great thing about the Christian faith and the Christian journey it is a journey of new beginnings and fresh starts. No matter how many times you've failed in the face of temptation, the Lord Jesus Christ stands at your doorway and he says to you this, I've died for your sins. Confess them, repent, trust in me and I'll bury your sins in the deepest ocean. That's the essence of redemption. Christ died for our sins, for our failures in the face of temptation. We don't have to live with shame. We don't have to live consumed with regret. We can live in freedom knowing that we serve a risen Savior who knows us, who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows every sin we've ever committed, who knows every evil thought that we've ever thought, who knows every temptation that we have fallen in the face of and offers out a hand of grace and mercy saying my blood will cover that too just trust in me place your faith in me repent and I'll equip you with my spirit and I'll help you stand the next time
I don't know how you're ready to respond this morning. Maybe you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because you've never done that before. And so you're going into this battle of temptation with no armament. You're sitting duck. You, you can't possibly win. You need Christ. You need the Holy Spirit in your heart. Maybe you're a believer who's just beaten down because you've, been, you've fallen so many times. And you just need to experience God's forgiveness and his grace this morning. Whatever you need, here's what I know. When we pray in just a moment, or at your house this afternoon, whenever, you can boldly approach the throne of grace and you can find mercy and grace to meet you, whatever your need is. Whatever your need is, look to Christ this morning. That's where the need will be found. And that's where the supply is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're everything. You're everything to us. You model for us what it looks like to stand strong in temptation. And it's easy for us to minimize these things as we read them on the text. That, but, but to see the, the, the accumulated wealth and glory of the world and to have it offered to you, the temptation you refuse is the temptation we often wish we could have. And yet you stood strong. You trusted in your Father. You refused to believe the lie. You trusted in the word of truth that you knew. Oh, help us to see that and to model it in our own lives. Lord, for the ones who are with us who don't know you, who are still operating in their own strength, who think they've got a handle on this life, figured out how to live, think they can stand up to temptation on their own. Oh, they're deceived. Open their eyes, Lord. Help them to see their only hope is Christ. Their only hope is you, as we sang earlier. And draw them to you in repentance and faith. And Lord, for the, the believer who's in the room who's just beaten down because some temptation has just been dogging their life and they've continually given in and they feel the shame and the regret pain and the embarrassment, maybe even dealing with the consequences of it right now. Lord, I pray that you would come to them in mercy and in grace. Draw them to yourself. Tell them they don't have to, to run from you, but they can run to you. Confession and repentance. And you'll clean the slate. You'll give them a fresh start. Lord, do your work in us by your spirit, but don't let us leave unchanged. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.